I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Training and development is what you use when you're under pressure. You don't want to be coming up with new chess moves when you're in a tournament, whether you're a soldier or a policeman or a chess master. When you're in the tournament, you've got to go with the training that you've had. Today's guest, Ezra Max, is trained and ready. He's a coach and he's going to up-level your game. Ezra, welcome. Hello, Rena. We have to start with some music. It's like crazy times. I love it. Yes, it is crazy times. Yeah, so I picked a song. Everything is from upstairs. It's all from my shop. What a great way to start, right? Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up because I just listened to your interview with Matt Drink on. And yeah, in that interview, you even mentioned that one thing that you have learned and a big aha moment that you've had, so to speak, was realizing that everything is from above and that we have to be able to see the good. Yeah. And I think that we're reminded of that time and time again. I don't think anything is by chance. I don't believe that because things are not by chance. When we schedule this, we we had talked about just getting on the air and, and sort of interacting about something related to either parenting or I don't remember exactly. And since our last conversation, we're now here and a war broke out in Israel and it affects all of us. And anti-Semitism is on full display throughout the U.S. and internationally. And I think I don't know. I don't know where you want to go, but it's your show. I'm here. I will be as real as I can. And let's see what happens. I actually would love to talk about that a little bit because I feel like that goes along with the work that you do. I mean, of course, I I wanted to talk about how trauma plays into creativity. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, Actually, I think trauma and creativity are opposing poles. My late friend, Dr. Danny Friedland, who wrote a book called Living Well From Within, one of the things that he so beautifully brings out is that when demands upon us are greater than our perceived resources to address those demands, we go into a downward spiral of reactivity. When the demands upon us 
are greater than our perceived resources, then we go into a downward spiral of reactivity. And if you want, I can point to the brain little model here, right? We have this thing called an amygdala, which is the alarm system of the brain. It's the reptilian level, you know, sort of the very reflexive instant response, you know, watching out for danger, protecting us part of the brain. It kicks in. What happens is, is that our ability to use creativity, which is sort of the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex goes away because the reptilian, the base level of the brain is saying, whew, I got to deal with this danger. And that's where training and skill comes in. So the better we are trained. So if you think about warriors, you think about a response team. I think, you know, this, I was in EMS for 30 years as a, you know, as an EMT and then as a chief EMS squad in New York. So I've got like, I want to say layers of perspective on this. In the moment, I, I actually heard this from a, an FBI agent in New Jersey. He was in a, we were talking about a, an active shooter training. That was the context of it. He said, you will fail to your highest level of training. And I said, but sir, wouldn't we succeed to our highest level? We train to succeed. And he said, no, you will fail to your highest level of training. You cannot be more creative than your highest level of training. So whatever your highest level of training is, that's how you're going to react in the moment when there's so much overwhelm in that moment. Mm. And so that is part of the answer. Now there's a way out of this. So I don't want to get stuck in, oh my gosh, so we're stuck because there's all this overwhelm and there's all this stuff out of beyond our control out there in the world. And so now we're in this reactive space. And if I'm being honest, and I said this to someone yesterday, October 7, 8, whatever the date was, the, the day after... Yeah. The day after this, this horrendous terrorist, terrorist is almost like not enough attack in Israel, mostly upon civilians. Worthwhile to say that because I hear all this equivocation and all this misinformation. It almost like, like re-triggered, not almost, it re-triggers me every single time. Like, how stupid can you be? Even if you're a professor in Harvard or Yale, and I'm calling them out and I don't care. I mean, you cannot be stupider than some of these dumb comments coming out of what's considered the uber elite smart people. Like if that's smart, I never want to be smart like that because that's utter stupidity. And, and I'm calling it what it is because when you see humans, I don't know if you could call them that, you see people who the level of depravity, the level of barbaric massacre that, that was incurred on civilians who are babies, children, women, elderly, it keeps going. Not that it's okay to do this upon soldiers. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is like, if you can't see with clarity that this is not okay, there's something wrong with whoever can't see it. That, that's where I'm going. So I was frozen. I like, I, I saw this and, and I felt it in my system. I felt very connected to it. Although I'm trained in so many different areas and in response, I needed to respond. The responder in me was like, okay, what can I do? But I'm here in America, I'm 6,000 miles away. You can't even get on a plane. I don't know if I should get on a plane. My family's like, you can't go there. I'm like, but I feel like I need to. And I need to contribute in some meaningful way. And I can, I, I've got some skills and tools. In the frustration of not being able to do anything there, one of the things I can do is combat what I knew was coming because I've seen it time and time again. This equivocation, this this misinformation campaign, this, oh, poor this, poor that. Oh, the, without, I don't want to go all the way down that path because there's some more detail in there I, I want to stick in. Someone shared with me a video today of a, a captured Israeli who may or may not be alive anymore, who's underneath three Hamas militants with guns and boots and whatever. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of people cheering in the street about this captured, dead or alive, semi-alive person, human, Israeli. And then somebody will say, what about the innocent people in Gaza? Well, to me, that's not innocence. Those are militants now. Because if you didn't put your foot down, you're not only allowing it to happen, you're supporting it. You're cheering it on. Well, when an Israeli warplane comes by and sends, hey, scatter, we're about to drop a missile here, which is what they do, which is the only country I know in the world that actually lets people know we're going to blow up this thing. And they stand there. Okay, bye-bye. Nice knowing you. 
not actually not nice knowing you, <laughs> right? Well, I went on a tangent, but let me come back to when we go into this place of overwhelm, stress leads to overwhelm. We're in that amygdala alarm system part of the brain. It's danger, safety, watch out. We're hardwired for safety. We're hardwired to protect ourselves. And when we need to protect ourselves, we, we're reactive. We're instinctive. We're not thinking creatively. We're not like, oh, let's draw a nice picture about what it looks like to get killed. Uh, no, we're reactive. That is reactivity, right? No, sometimes we react in a way that protects ourselves and helps us. And sometimes we react in a way that gets ourselves killed. And we see that happen in lots of different ways. Having said that, your next question will be... <laughs> I can anticipate it. Well, what do we do if we're so overwhelmed and we're so reactive and we have no choice? We're stuck. The answer is there's ways to break out of that reactivity. Maybe not with someone actively shooting at you because that's an intense moment. And even there, I would argue that if you've trained for it, you're able to regroup and find yourself. And if you listen to some of the stories of civilians as well as military personnel who stood up to the challenge, who heard automatic gunfire and realized, oh, this is not the usual, jumped out of bed, grabbed a rifle, ran to a window or found the spot, barricaded themselves and took out 5, 10, 20, 30 terrorists. The word 30 terrorists, as I said it out loud, I get the chills. There were hundreds, there were thousands, thousands of Gazans, citizens or not, who came into Israel, broke across a fence, climbed into a border with automatic weapons, with grenade launchers, with mounted guns, with one focus. Let's kill as many people as we can. Let's create mayhem. Does anybody feel bad for the terrorists who got shot that day? No one's even talking about it. Some of these civilians who have some form of training because they had a gun, so they went to a range or they knew they were able to protect themselves and they took up a post and, and some were successful in, in, like I said, killing multiple terrorists and stopping the advance of this annihilation that happened on other houses, homes, and people who didn't have that reaction, ability to defend themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So we see that even in reactivity, if you have training, your reactivity will, you'll default to your training, which is what the FBI guy was telling me. You'll fail to your highest level of training. The better your training, the better you can react to the moment, the better you'll know how to navigate whatever you need to navigate. And you don't have to think. You already know what your sight lines are. You know where you're, how to stand behind the structure, where to put yourself, how to peek out, how not to, how to keep quiet, how not, et cetera. So that's one part. And then the second part is even if you don't know, again, if someone's actually shooting at you, I don't think this so much applies, but I, I think that in the aftermath of that, we could stay frozen. We could say stop because we have all this energy, if you will, fight or flight. I will call it adrenaline. We have all this energy that needs to go somewhere. It needs to come out of our system. Otherwise, it stays inside and it, it makes a mess of us. Emotionally, physically, Peter Levine, Dr. Peter Levine, and now uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kock wrote, called He Waking the Tiger is back in the 80s. Bessel wrote, The Body Keeps the Score more recently. These are books all about trauma and trauma response. And one of the core points of this in, in the context of, of trauma is that trauma is stored at a cellular level. Because that energy, that massive amount of fight or flight type of fuel is somewhere. And if it doesn't express itself in some way, it ends up in a freeze locked inside and then it destroys us and we carry it. I love that so, you use the word fuel. Because it is fuel. Adrenaline is fuel. Now, if we live in an uh, over adrenaline way, I talk about my life as an EMS responder. You know, there's a lot of adrenaline in that. Every time you hit your lights and sirens, every time you get an emergency call, every time you automatically go into a different zone internally, right? Every, you know, the joke about police officers being in donut stores. Well, one of the ways that you get the adrenaline out of your system is with high sugar because the sugar molecule, if you will, eats the adrenaline molecule. I'm oversimplifying. I know it's not a science lesson, but essentially when you have all of that adrenaline coursing through your system, it's got to get out somehow. And one of the ways it gets out is with high sugar. High, that's why you see high carb, high sugar. And, and of course, if you don't exercise, that, that ends up leading to 
the epidemic in America. All right, total tangent. So <laughs> now there's another way, right? Other than eating donuts to get out of this high adrenaline state, which is to bring your prefrontal cortex back online to get into creativity, which is to resource. Because the flip of this model, back to, to Dr. Danny's model of when the resources are greater than the demands, what happens is we go into an upward spiral of creativity. If I spell that right, I get a prize. When we're able to recognize that we do have resources, Danny, right before he got diagnosed with stage four uh, brain cancer, I had learned this idea from him and then I adapted it. And I, I sent him a picture of the whiteboard as I drew it out for a class of college students, of young women, first year college students. And I said to them, as Orthodox Jews, we, we walk with Hashem, we walk with the Almighty. Like that's part of how we exist. Being cognizant, being super aware at a intellectual as well as an emotional, physical level of God's presence everywhere in the world. And that when we say the Shema every single day, what are we saying? We're, we're reminding ourselves of Hashem protecting us and being around and looking after us and caring for us in the world. And then I sent a picture of this to Danny. I, like 10 minutes later, my phone rang. I was walking back into the house. I'd just come home from, from class. And he said, thank you for that picture. I'm not quite sure what that represents because I sent him a voice note. And I started explaining it to him. And Danny grew up in a I would call it traditional home. He wasn't religious. And he said, you mean the Shema prayer? Like Shema Yisrael, Shema Ken Shema? Like he knew it. He sang it. I said, yes. He said, you took my work and you figured out how to connect it to a connection with the Almighty. And you taught like, and he started to cry. And I started to cry with him. It was a very emotional moment with us. And then shortly thereafter, he got diagnosed. And then he was in and out of the hospital. And now he's gone. But the point that came out of this is that when we resource, when we're resourced, when we recognize we have a resource greater than any demand upon us, we can tap into our creativity. And I would argue there's no greater resource in the world than God. And that when we can tap into that, we can always be creative even under fire because the demands of whoever's shooting at you or whatever's happening bad around you, missiles exploding over your head. And when you think about this and, and I'll flip back to the overwhelm part, we don't have a concept, an American in my or your experience. You may or may not have had the experience of being in a gunfight, of having someone shoot while you're around. I've been in scenes where somebody was shot, where the shooter came back, where there's gunfire while we're trying to treat a victim and we have to make a quick decision about how do we evacuate, get, get this person out. And of course, the first rule in EMS is, is our our own safety because a dead a dead responder can't do anything but think about like a large group of people somebody's hurt and you're there trying to treat them and all of a sudden you hear pop 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 you don't know where it's coming from right you're we're we're bending over a patient on the floor this has happened i've been in this right in new york in la in israel i volunteered and it's in israel in different places and it's scary to know that like while you're trying to do your job help somebody you are actually in danger potentially like like and you've got to keep a dual awareness. You need a, like eyes behind your head, head on a swivel kind of thing. I'm saying this intellectually and I'm saying this from personal experience, but I don't know what it means to live in a zone where there's hundreds, not one, not 10, not 50, not hundreds, plural, of rockets, rockets being big fat missiles, metal tubes filled with explosives coming through your backyard consistently for days. Aimed at who? Civilians. It's not aimed at military targets. I'm currently in Brooklyn. Could you imagine somebody is sitting in the other half of Brooklyn, right? Or in Queens, just shooting randomly towards Brooklyn. So you say, okay, a few people who live near the border of Queens, like need to move back. Okay, so we did that already, right? We got to keep them from, from advancing. Okay, so we put up a fence and we have some people looking out, watching out. But when they start shooting missiles indiscriminately into Brooklyn, like where do you hide? <laughs> Like where, do, where do you go? It's not for nothing that I think every single home is required by law 
to have a secure room on the inside, a concrete room with a steel door called a shelter room. That's how we live. I've asked myself that question. Where do we hide lately myself? Right. How do you live this way? And, And what these terrorists did, and terrorists doesn't feel like it's strong enough to say, people were locked in their safe room. So they took tires, set them on fire and rolled them into the house. So the black smoke from the melting tire would force them to come out of their rooms. And as they climbed out the window, came out the door, they shot them dead. Okay, that's where how creative can you be when you're stuck in a in a room and the smoke is like you're you're dead either way. Like, what do you do? Have you ever been uh, pissed off at God? Well, have I ever been? No, I've never been pissed off at God. I've met, I've interacted with a lot of people who have. I've been in situations that I question what is the lesson for me in this mayhem. Yeah. So that for me is how I react. Some people get mad. They just get angry. How can God let this happen? Well, yeah. I don't have enough perspective, like a wide enough lens to be able to begin to ask that question, let alone answer it. Be- because how how much information do I really have? I, I don't know. What I can ask is what is God trying to teach me? Because this affects me deeply, as you can tell. I'm, like this this is a wake-up call. And and I, I, I yeah. just submitted an article to the Jewish Image Magazine called Managing Fear and Overwhelm, The Jewish Response to Terrorism. And it was just my strong feelings around what are we to do when we see something Yeah. And we feel disempowered. For me, it's like a knock, knock. Who's there? This is God talking to you. You need to do something differently. And I even, someone called me today and he said, uh, you're like my, I'm just so overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with what's going on in the Middle East. I'm overwhelmed with my business. I'm overwhelmed with my, I'm just overwhelmed. I needed to call someone. I know who I could just say I'm overwhelmed to. I said, me too. I got, he says, no, 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 don't do that to me. I I said, I'm not going to give you some pat answer, but I will say what I'm thinking about in my overwhelm right now, which is a, I really appreciate that you felt comfortable to reach out to me and I'm here for you. Number one, he says, I, I know I really appreciate it. That's all I really need. He says, I know you're going to tell me God's in charge, lean into prayer, lean into kindness, lean into charity. He said, I am doing that. I'm doing a fundraiser for people who lost a limb. I'm doing blah, blah, blah. He went through a whole list of stuff that he's doing to help and support things going on beyond him, whether it, and he had a list of stuff. He says, and I know you're going to tell me, faith and trust that the almighty knows what he's up to. and He's got this figured out. I said, yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. Exactly. I said, but I will tell you one other thought that came to me. When I look at the intensity, when I look at the ferociousness of dysfunction that we as a world just witnessed, this is ISIS level bad stuff. This is Nazi level bad stuff. It's triggering on so many levels. This element, this terroristic element thinks they're doing God's will, God's work in the world. And at some level, maybe they are, and it's hard to say that, but I, I don't think they can do that. You someone can't hurt you without sort of permission from above. But the lesson I can take from that is, do I pray with the same level of intensity as they murder? Ooh. Do I do kindness with the same level of intensity that they murder? Do I operate as a parent, as a human, as a business owner, as a leader in and outside of my community with the same intensity of connection with a higher power. Wow. And my answer was no. And it hurt me that my answer was no, because, oh, I have so many negative things to say about what that is. If there's that level of darkness out there and available, then it is upon me first Mm. and anyone I know and I come into into conversation with, for me to share with them, if you will, there's a level of connection and light that we could bring into the world that's at least equal to the darkness. And so when you say, are you you mad at God? I've met, I I worked with struggling teens, people who went through a lot of trauma, you know, really upset at God 
people. Yeah. And I can sometimes feel their pain. Like I'm with them. I'm walking with them on that path and that hurt in the destruction. Children who got hurt and traumatized in ways that they had no way to protect themselves. Like, what do you want from them? Like they didn't have the ability. You see a baby burnt or, or shot in the back of the head. And you're like, what did this baby ever do wrong? Right? We're like, okay, but we don't understand the bigger picture. If we can take that level of I am doing God's will in the world in a positive way, in a productive way, in a meaningful way, in a growth building kind of way, oh my gosh, this world would be a much better place. Because it, you can't have dark without light. It's impossible, right? They, they're, they're symbiotic, if you will. When this gentleman called me, I said to him, you're doing great stuff. It's amazing. I get that it's difficult. I get that it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming time for all of us. I hear you. I'm not minimizing it. I'm here for you. What can we do a little bit more? How can we add a little bit more connection and direction channeling of that connection into anything that we're doing with intention, with focus, with awareness, with consciousness, this part of our brain. He's like, I'm good. Thank you. I'm going back to work now. And I appreciate him for, for calling me. And he said, you know, you should do like a five minute every day, just put out like a thing and just say these kind of things. Cause this is you. I said, yeah, it is me. And I don't know if I'll do it every day, but it's really you because you called me and you asked me hold something out of me that was germinating inside. And now I had the opportunity and I appreciate you for calling because I got to share this with you. He gave me a gift of calling me today. He thinks he called me for his help. Hmm. He called to help me so that I could share with him. Does that make any sense? I love like, how you I see appreci- it that way. Yeah, I mean, I even feel that way about this show. It was like, I wanted to share my dad's wisdom with the world, but the more people that I interview and the more people that I hold space for, they're actually lending to our wisdom rating. It's, it's actually it's, the other way around. So there's a Talmudical <laughs> saying, which means from my teachers, I learned a lot, but from my students, I learned the most. Mm. And one of the ways I understand that in, in practical, my life experience, and I've taught on and off for many years, is that students ask me questions that I've never thought about. They challenge me to A, understand my material or my belief system better. And they also expose elements of whatever is going on in ways that I would never question. So I wouldn't come to that clarity. And so therefore I benefit. I I mean, I'm supposed to be at the front of room teaching, but generally I try to interact because I know that they will bring some wisdom or at least questions, if not wisdom, because not always will they have an answer, but they'll bring a perspective that will then give me an opportunity to explore further, think about from another dimension, e.g. the question of, you know, are you mad at God? Well, no, I, I understand how somebody might be. I mean, after the Holocaust and no judgment, there were people who related to that and said, how could God do this? I, I'm not going to, like, I'm, I'm done with, with godliness and like, there can't be a God in this world, right? Other people came out of the Holocaust and said, oh my gosh, there's absolutely a God running the show. And I was gifted the opportunity to survive. And I'm going to make sure that I do the best I can in this world because God chose me to be the future of the Jewish generation because there's not so many of us left, right? Two people, same experience, if you will, come out of that and have a completely opposite question and answer with themselves (laughs) and then behaviors that follow, right? Because the better our questions, there's a concept of, of a good question is half an answer. The way we ask a question is what we're looking for. I was watching a, I think it was Wolf Blitzer and he's a, pretty popular TV host. Commentator, yeah. Whatever he is. He asked this person three questions. All three of them were leading questions. All three of them were anti-Israel. All three of them were setting up the interviewee to say the the thing that would validate a specific narrative. And this... Arab Israeli pretty much told him he's a fool. He took the questions that he was like, aren't you worried about the innocent civilians in Gaza? He's like, 
Why should I worry about them? Hamas is keeping them as human shields. They either choose to be there or they're being blocked from leaving. And the Israelis are saying, leave, we're going to blow this place up. And they're still there. Like, I should feel bad for them? Why don't you ask why Hamas is using human shields and the international community is not telling Hamas, you're a terrorist organization, we're going to help blow you up. No, no, no. Don't blame Israel for this. This is not a fight we started. This is not a way we can live. Occupy territories? Are you kidding? It's Israel's territory with people squatting that they said, okay, squatters, here, you could have it, just stop fighting with us. And they keep coming and fighting one after another. Billions of dollars. The UN is funding terrorism every single day. The UN and a whole bunch of other institutions. Hamas takes a percentage of every dollar that comes into the Gaza Strip and spent billions of dollars living in, in, you know, the leadership living in other Arab countries and then building an entire terrorist, uh, terrorist infrastructure. If you watch videos from UN-run schools and what they're teaching, they're teaching hate. They're teaching, they're teaching baby terrorists. They're breeding terrorism. Billions of dollars. Oh, poor innocent civilians. You're right. These kids didn't do anything wrong. They were groomed for terrorism. But right now, they're walking time bombs. If a guy with a suicide vest is walking towards you, no matter if he's four years old or 40 years old, shoot him in the head. You can't let him come and blow you up. You got to eliminate the threat. Don't blame me that you trained your children to be suicide bombers. And that's what you want for them, for their future. They worship death. We're all about life. We're all about choosing life. It's a Pasuk in, in Chumash, you know, Bechart of That's what we're about. That's what the Jewish nation is about. But there's an element inside the Muslim community. And I'm not saying this for every Muslim out there. I have friends who are Muslim who have reached out and like they want to make sure I'm okay kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the terroristic element. And there's a significant percentage of terroristic element. They value death. That's what they want. They want to die faster. They want everybody around them to die faster. Okay, we're on different frequencies. And the American public doesn't get it. I'm watching some of these college campus demonstrations and I'm, I'm not even scared as much as I'm horrified that there's yeah. an entire generation of idiots that are going to go on to be in corporate America who are Jew haters through and through and actually believe some of their nonsense they're spewing or they don't even know. I would give them the benefit of doubt that they don't know, but I'm at the point where I'm realizing it, they, they do know. It became okay and in vogue to be an anti-Semite. And that that's where we're at. Is that baked into our society? What do I know? But what I'm seeing happen now is something I've never seen. Now, I could tell you the positive side of it. The positive side of it is people who hid from their own Judaism, who would never step out and say, I'm Jewish, oh, yeah. who would never take a stand for Jewish yep. values, who would not take a stand for Israel, who are anti-Israel in a very democratic, woke way. Yep. have gotten the biggest kick in the pants they ever got. <laughs> and they're waking up and saying, no, 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 no more. And there's a unity in, in the international Jewish community that's looking beyond the, the superficial conflict and recognizing our hearts are one big beating heart that's been shattered into a million pieces over 2,000 years of Gullus of being away from being with a Beis HaMikdash, being with, you know, in a, a spiritual environment called Israel, not the state of Israel. I'm making a distinction there. And we're coming together in ways that are incredible. That's the beauty. Terrorism. Somebody called me last week or two weeks ago and he said, I'm scared. What do I do? Literally, I'm scared. What do I do? Yeah. I said, well, thank you for calling. <laughs> I said, I feel you. I, I get it. I said, terrorism is a verb. It's a verb called we're going to instill terror. That's what terrorist is. Terroristic event, right? I remember 9-11, right? I remember the fear in my bones coming home 12 hours, maybe 15 hours later that night after being almost dying when the towers came down. And then you heard the, the interview with Matt. So you know what I'm talking about. Being there the entire day and I came home, I don't know what time at night it was. All I know, it was dark outside. There was no traffic. Nothing was moving. I saw one guy walking a dog and I looked over my shoulder five times as I walked up to my house, my apartment. I remember feeling afraid, like, am I okay? 
my sense of equilibrium was off. Totally. Complete, right? And that was a plane with four guys or six guys that, that flew into a building, right? Let's think about comparatively, not thousands of people by foot, by motorcycle, by car coming into my backyard with machine guns, shooting everything in sight, including the EMS guys, including the police force, including the civilians, including the people fleeing anything and anything that moved, they shot at. Well, that has to be eliminated from the world. That cannot go on. I mean, America went to war for 20 years as a result of, I don't know, a dozen guys dozen and a half guys to war. And now the Israelis are being told, stop, pull back. You can't go in. Eh, what about some, seriously? No way. Well, because you asked me about, I don't even remember the question you asked me about creativity. Oh, overwhelm. Stress? I, I want to talk. Yeah. A little bit more about the overwhelm. Like how can we be there for people that have lost someone or don't know if they've lost someone? I mean, this is affecting the entire Jewish community. Like everyone knows someone who is affected by this. And even if you don't know someone, you know someone who knows someone. Exactly. So, what are um, the best things to say? How can we know. support our community? <laughs> You've the... stared death in the face. Yes. And I still don't know the best thing to say. And I don't know if okay. there's a right thing to say. Fair enough. Um, I, got I know stuck. you had pictures too by your computer for an entire year of all the images of 9-11. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was me processing my own trauma. That was me acknowledging in a very real, tangible way something yeah. that was so like I, I couldn't come to terms with it. And the truth is that as you're reminding me of this, I'm feeling sadness. I'm realizing that I'm so far removed from what's going on there that, and I stayed away from the pictures. I stayed away from the images. You can't not see that stuff. You oh, can't it's horrible. Not, you can't unsee. I, I can't sleep at night. Well, I understand, but I want to answer the question directly. Yeah. I think everyone needs to resource in whatever way they know how. I believe I'm a big, strong believer, David HaMelech. Tehillim, right? This is the art scroll to Tehillim. It's transliterated into English. I spend time in this book every single day. And for me, I recognize that in here is a code to connect my heart, my soul with the Almighty mm. and generations of Jews who went through struggle and overwhelm. So for me, Tehillim is like, a, I always have this with me. And even if I don't have the physical book with me, I know enough by heart that I can, I can do it in my head. I can, Any I favorite? Can, I don't know if I have the right one. I think for this one, 23, the comment, the quote of, even though I walked in the valley overshadowed by death, I know you were with me. That's that's mm. one of them. Some of the Shir Hamalos, like the 120s and the 120s, 123, 125. I don't remember which one's which. If you want, I could look for you. Put it in the show notes. I mean, yeah. um, we know when I cried out to you, Hashem, you were there. You know, what is it? Mom, uh, and then there, there are some other ones. I mean, there's one that from the last Gaza war that the rabbis recommended we say, which is 120, 142. I'm crying out to you. I, I'm just leaning on you. I, I don't, you know, in here, there's a word for the quote is free me, Hashem, save me. From the wicked man of violence and the word violence is hamas the wicked the wicked man the wicked the, the word for violence and and if you look at the translation guard me against these this, this wicked element this violent wicked element and so 140 would might be very appropriate today if you go into i'm flipping pages give me a second my husband literally just texted me while we're on here and there's a bomb threat at my kid's school. And I understand why, because some stupid college kid who's getting a higher ed degree on your and my dime tax dollar needs to be kicked out of school, locked up in prison and made an example of that. It's not okay. Now, why am I blaming it on a college kid? Because I'm watching what's going on on college campuses. The one, 121 is a, a big one. Of course, the word Ezri means help. And my name is Ezra. It's Ezri Mayim Hashem. My help is from Hashem. So people joke, you know, I come from Hashem and I'm here as God's messenger, if you will, Ezra, the, the prophet and the scribe. So inbuilt into my name and the spiritual DNA of my naming convention, you know, so I feel connected with this one as well. And there's others, but so if you want to, 
two or three, that, those, that's where I would. Um, and the second part of your name is light. Mayor is to, to light up or to enlighten. And, and part of what I wrote is the role of the Jew. And like, let's think about this for a minute. What is the role of the Jew? It's to be a, a light in the world, to be a light onto the nations. What does that mean? We're a tiny little speck. If you look at the map of the Middle East, you can barely see Israel. You look at the size of Egypt compared to the size of Israel. I mean, it's not even comparable. I don't know if it's like a, a hundred to one. And there's a border between Gaza and Egypt. That's closed. The Egyptians don't want them. And then there's Jordanians on the other side. And Jordan is, I don't know how big Jordan is. And then you keep going. There's Muslim countries like this much on the globe. And there's this little sliver, a little tiny dot, you know, little tiny little strip of land with a few million Jews living there. None of the Muslim countries want anyone from the Gaza Strip. And the reason is because they all get bragging rights and they all have what to do. And there's thousands of people who are employed to make sure that this problem stays. You take away this problem, the whole UN, like all their focus on Israel and all their monies and billions of dollars and all the unrest school, let them go help other people who are struggling. That bothers me. That, that bothers me because I could see it very clearly that there's an agenda to maintain the problem. The reason they keep starting up is because they don't want the problem to go away. We want, we, the Jewish people, the country called, we want peace. We don't start wars. We're not looking for fights. We're, you bring it to us, we'll wipe you out because that's what's going to have to happen. And everybody around is going to say, oh, calm down, calm down. Bah, bah, bah. No, no. Terrorism, you don't negotiate, you eliminate. You don't negotiate, you eliminate. And by the way, for some stupid college kid who's going to do something stupid, I hope the American policing wakes up and says, eliminate the threat. Don't negotiate, just eliminate. Okay, I'm glad you actually brought that up. Because eliminate you it. Like have, straight up eliminate it. You have worked alongside the NYPD. Can you please talk a little bit about <laughs> how that has uh, changed over the years? I was an informal liaison for many years and I, I have many relationships and I've watched the the shift, if you will, happen. And I'm yes. not thrilled with how American policing shifted to a very progressive, permissive, pro-criminal, anti-citizen type of situation, which has led us to the mayhem we're experiencing across America, not only in New York, but when we don't prosecute crimes for crimes, you know, the back in the Giuliani days of broken window policing, where whatever was cleaned up and taken off the streets and the subways were feeling safe and the streets were feeling safe. It's out the one, it's gone. And it's not only this administration's fault, meaning at the federal level and or the local level, certainly at the local level, our past mayor de Blasio, who won by default, not because he was elected. He made some very bad choices. He bankrupted the city coffers. Most people don't know that, but if you talk to people in the city government, they'll tell you. And he restrained the police from doing their job. And he was more pro-criminal than he was pro-blue. So at the end of the day, what you, Chicago, so you're in Chicago. Look at what's going on in Chicago. I oh left there. Look what's going on. It's, I left because it's of that. out of control. Yes. Right. You know, and, and this is this is the thing where, you know, we could sit and, and I'm not big on politics. I'm too straight shooter real. I, I can't do that whole mm -hmm. lie, make it up. Just call it what it is, you know. So politics is not my thing. But American policing works on a premise that somebody is just having a bad day but they want to live. Middle Eastern politics, specifically terrorism, works on a premise I want to kill and I want to die in the process of killing. I just want to take as many people down with me. When there's a ramming attack in, in Israel, it basically means, generally, it means a Arab terrorist, and I'm not, again, I'm painting with a broad stroke. I'm not painting everyone. I'm saying an Arab terrorist is now trying to kill as many people as he can. You need to kill him, not negotiate with him. The only reason to keep him alive is to find out who sent him and who else is coming. Otherwise, kill him because he's just going to keep doing it. You lock him up in jail. He gets out of jail. He does it again. He doesn't doesn't wake up. They're saying that this thing, they, they did a prisoner transfer. They did an exchange for a soldier that was kidnapped for years. 
held in captivity until they, they gave back a bunch of people from prison. They're part of what just happened. Really, Israel should just like, I mean, it's not legal, so he won't do it because they won't break the law. They should just kill all these people. Like, there's no point to lock them up and then give them back. Like, that's crazy. And I know I'm saying something that sounds extreme for an American brain, but if you spend time there and you feel into and sense into what's going on, we need to eliminate evil from this world. And there's a time when you need to say, no, 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 this is evil. We're going to eliminate it. And this is something we can negotiate with and talk to, and we're going to try to rehab it. We need to know where to draw that line. And it's not easy. And I'm not saying I have the answers. So you asked me the question of what's the right thing to say. I don't know. I don't know if there is a right thing to say. I think each person is in their own headspace. I'm being aggressive in some of what I'm saying, I'm aware, but I really think we need to eliminate evil. I, I really think that we have to look at the landscape that we're faced with a reality check of if someone has a death wish and they want to take out as many people as they can on the way, let's just help them get there faster. And I'm not joking when I say this, I mean it, help them get there faster and eliminate all the mayhem they're going to cause. Okay. You know, so speaking of a death wish... You've even had that in your own personal circle, in your own <laughs> family. Oh, you want to take me there, do we, huh? I, I assume we're going to the firebug guy, right? Yeah, tell me, tell me what you can about that. And is there any parallel? There's a slight parallel, and I think there's a, there's a difference in the parallel. So I can't diagnose someone to be a psychopath, but as close as anyone could be to a psychopath, there's a gentleman out there, and I don't know if I should call him a gentleman. There's a, a guy who behaves with the dynamics of a psychopath who literally put a tattoo on his arm that says, kill Rabbi Max, meaning my dad, not me, could have met me. Actually, at some point he was coming to kill me too. So he threatened to, to kill my dad. This was not something that we didn't believe or know was real because, and many people said, oh, he's just crazy talk, crazy talk, crazy talk. But crazy talk has some truth to the crazy talk. He did come and attempt to, to kill my parents and, and burnt down their house at four o'clock in the morning with a very clear trajectory and plan and warning signs. And the people around him were, were fearful and, you know, even called 911 and said, this guy is going to do it, you know, but again, American policing is limited, you know, with his laws to, to give people their freedoms, even if someone's crazy, you know, would we call him a terroristic element? I don't know because I think he's a mental health patient. You know, I've said that before and I'll, I'll keep going. I do believe he's a mental health patient. As much as he's a mental health patient, he's a danger to society, specifically to my family, because he's a mental health patient, you know, homie missile, whatever you want to call it, where he needs to act on this. It's years that he's been focused, laser focused on this thing. And, and I asked my dad years ago about like, how do we, how do we navigate this? Do you want to put in, you know, an extensive alarm system, security, this kind of things? He's like, I can't live in fear and walk around looking over my shoulder my whole life. I'm not going to do that. He hmm. said, Shemer Psalm Hashem, God is watching out for us. I can't live my whole life that this maniac is out there trying to get me. I can do, I'll file a police report. I'll take a restraining order. I'll do, it's the funniest thing. I, I want to make fun for a minute. So a restraining <laughs> order is to do what? Is to keep someone away from you. So a criminal element, someone who's going to kill you. Does that person really give a care if there's a restraining order? No. It's like gun-free zone, right? And I was saying this the other day because my kids, I, was, I, I still have some in school. And I said, I understand the shelter in place protocols. I actually disagree with it under the current environment. I mm. want you and all your friends to know that if something bad happens, you have my full permission to kill Anyone who comes into your school building with a threatening stance, if it looks like they're there, they don't belong there, they're trespassing, and they have any type of weapon, do everything in your power and your friend's power to eliminate, to kill that person. Don't stop them. If you're in a classroom and they break into the room and it looks like a gun, a knife, a stick, it doesn't matter. Take metal chairs and break the guy's head until he's dead. Now, I'm saying this on a podcast and somebody might knock on my door and say, hey, what's going on? You homicidal maniac. <laughs> I'm not homicidal. I'm not suicidal. I am protecting my children's lives. They are in a private school, in a locked building that has security. And if somebody got past security in that locked building and has a threatening stance, they need to be eliminated, 
not negotiated less. Does that Wouldn't make it be better sense? to run? Well, you could run, but bullets move faster than your little feet. True. Right? So the shelter in place protocol has a place. And I get that. And I understand that. But again, think about a school shooting. Somebody has to get in there to stop the shooter, right? But if everybody in school would take out the school shooter, by the way, this is where I was going, my point. You know, the one place you don't have to worry about anyone shooting you back in America? In a school, it's a gun-free zone. You're not allowed to bring your guns to school. So the teachers can't have school. Only the police officer in the front of the building, if it has one, is allowed to have a gun in that building. So if you want to create mayhem, you do it in a place where there's no guns. Gun control is for law-abiding citizens. The non-law-abiding citizens don't care. Very true. So we have a gun-free zone in Times Square. Woo-hoo! Because everybody who's going to shoot someone in Times Square is going to right, right, get what I'm saying with this. Okay. You know, it's funny. Someone said to me the other day in context, gun control laws that prevent citizens from having legal weapons are actually not helping the criminals. They're not stopping the criminals from creating mayhem. You're just giving them more opportunity. Okay. I'm on a total tangent. So no, do I want killer children? No. Let me say that. I don't <laughs> want killer children. No. But my daughter my just texted safe. me like the police dogs were cute. <clears throat> mm. Talking about a little bit of comedy. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I don't want my kids to feel overwhelmed in the moment and have to think about what to do. They have instructions on what to do because you can't think. So you run, you run, you're, you, you get shot in the back of the head. Look what just happened in Israel. Right. My God, well, I'm so scared we're not even going talking there. about this. We're not going there. Whew. The kids have to know what happens. Again, I think it's incumbent on every parent to, to resource themselves, number one. Yes. Right? To, to calm our own nervous system. Like, I don't feel anxious right now. I, I'm not looking over my shoulder saying, oh my gosh, someone's following me. Right. Yep. Although I'm more alert than I normally would be, if you will, when I'm outside, because for sure, you know, like if I see someone who doesn't fit into the landscape of where I'm at, if I'm in the school building and somebody who's not part of the school, who's not part of the, you know, who's not supposed to be there. My first question is, what is this person doing? What's their intention? And I can quickly go through that. But if they're coming with an aggressive stance, we're not negotiating. <laughs> <laughs> that's not where we're at, right? right? Does that make sense? Yes. And so I, I think that if we don't think about it in advance, then we haven't kind of programmed ourselves for that awareness and for that response. And I know I come from a responder perspective and I've been to multiple trainings and back after September 11, the common theme of a lot of the training was it's only a matter of when, not if we have some next level terrorist type of attack. So I'm not making light of it. I am not suggesting everybody become hyped up. You know, let me go do something, whatever extreme. I'm suggesting that we just have a extra awareness of options and to recognize that certain times and places require a very extreme shut it down type of response versus, you know, in, in policing, you have to match. You can escalate only as much as the, the offender is escalating. And in this case, you need to assume some things that otherwise we wouldn't assume, e.g., if we see somebody coming into a school building with negative intent in today's environment, we need to make certain assumptions and eliminate that threat. Right? I keep saying this now. Not popular, not PC. Actually, I can't be in politics. This doesn't fly. But I, I think that as a parent, my role is not to scare my children, but rather to prepare them to not be a sitting duck. Amen to that. So, and that comes back to the creativity. And then, of course, I mean, we all understand that, you know, every bullet has an address, they say, is an expression. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Every bullet has an address. You, Some innocent bystander gets hit by something and some, you know, really bad dude or gal dodges it in some way. You know, they, they shoot 10 times and somehow miss. God is running the show and it is a perfect world, meaning we operate in a perfectly imperfect uh, balance because we're human, but at a supernatural level, God's got a perfect, organized, harmonious structure that we may not even be able to tap into because again, we're human, we're limited with capacity and faculties. You know, if we would zoom out high enough and big enough, maybe we would have a totally different 
we would absolutely have a different conversation because our perspective and our language would shift. There's one other thing I want to say about this, which is there's a quote in, in Perkyavos that says, and literally translated, it means don't give up from bad stuff happening. It means that like <laughs> you see you see horrible people having good lives. The guy who's the head guy from Hamas is living in Qatar in a billion dollar palace, you know, laundering all this money coming to supposedly help the poor people in Gaza right? He has a good life. He's a terrorist. Why does he get such a good life? So don't worry. His There's karma. We call it in English. He'll get his. It'll come. Yeah. It's not mine or your job to figure that out. That, that's not where we're at. The other thing is you literally translate it is bad stuff is going to happen. It's part of life. It's part of the symbiotic relationship, the ebb and flow, the life cycle, bad stuff happens. And as Jews, we've been through some pretty horrible stuff, generation after generation after generation after generation, over thousands of years, 2000 years now. So I don't want to say we're used to it, but we have some coping mechanism and our coping mechanisms are around prayer. Our coping mechanisms are around kindness. It's around compassion and empathy and support and unity. And that's how we've survived time and time again. There's a supernatural force at play, but by all metrics, we shouldn't exist. We should not exist. We're a minority of a minority of a minority inside a minority who have been moved around the whole globe multiple times. And yet, when we double down on our Torah values, when we do the mitzvot, when we live a Torah lifestyle, we do chesed, we do tzedakah, we operate from that place of spiritual connection and actually show up in the world with those values, even with all the destruction, even with all the persecution, even with all the bad stuff going on, we still somehow thrive time and time again. And that might be why they hate us so much. They just can't kill us. They try. And we say it by the Pesach Seder, right? We sing that song. We all do it. And this year at the Seder, you know, in April, I was sitting around the table and we we're talking about generations and people are trying to wipe us out and this, that. I said, you know, kids, I, we're sitting around the table. I said, let's look at our grandparents, my grandparents, my wife's grandparents. And let's see, did anyone have a simple, easy life? My wife's grandparents came out of the Holocaust. They were both in multiple death camps. Miracle, they're alive. Wow. My grandmother, my, my father's a Palestinian, technically. He was born in Israel. So my father's a Palestinian, right? The rabbi, nice. the Jewish rabbi is a Palestinian. Certainly my grandmother, who was born in the early 1900s in Jerusalem, right? My and, dad's father's mom was too. Yeah. So we, we might even be cousins for all we hey, know because it was a probably. small Jewish right? Small Jewish community in Jerusalem at that time. But here's the thing. Jordanian snipers shot out the door while she was carrying a bucket of water pregnant back into the home. And she reached for the door and boom the thing just blew out of her hand and, and just missed her, just missed her. This is not a new thing, terrorism on Jews. <laughs> the whole Palestinian crisis is based on a, the PLO, which is a terrorist organization, which created a class or a society that didn't really exist. I mean, the authentic Palestinians are the Jews, not the Arabs. Let's not get confused here. Muhammad showed up after the Jews were in Israel. Let's think about history for a minute. If we want to go down this road of, of who belongs and who doesn't, and, and I'm not, whatever, and all this apartheid and genocide and whatever, all these statements, people really need to do some research and and understand what the basic words mean and what that looks like, right? There are Arab Israelis who get healthcare, who get education, who can live in safety and security and comfort. I mean, they would never live in Gaza. You couldn't pay them to live in Gaza. Right. Right. They can walk around in a Jewish neighborhood and just get a high five and a hello. I'm not allowed legally to go into Gaza because I will be killed instantly. Well, let's think about this. And the truth is, as I'm thinking about it, if I go to a college campus tomorrow, pick your college campus anywhere in the country, there's a real question if I'm safe. America, 2023, obvious Jewish guy with the Amica goes to a college campus. How safe am I going to be? How quickly is campus security going to be like, well, dude, what are you doing here? Where are you going? Why are you starting trouble? Make sense what I'm saying? 
Yes. I think that reality check is something that we need to look in the mirror and say, okay, what's the message? And when I say, what's the message? I don't mean what's the message to someone else. I could ask, what's the message for you? And whoever's listening or watching this can ask the question, what's the message for me too? If you're seeing and hearing us, this is a message for you as well. That's for sure. That's my basic belief system. And then ask the question, what am I supposed to learn from this? What is the message? I'm not going to say that I know the answer necessarily. I can tell you what some of my answer might be. I'm not going to tell anyone else what their answer is. I think we have to ask an authentic, open question. What is it that God wants from me in this moment, right? What is the message? The message is I'm way too comfortable in America, mm. way too comfortable. And I'm not, I'm not remembering that I'm missing something in my spiritual development and growth, not having the base of Megdosh, not having the temple, not living in a holistic spiritual bubble all the time, right? My comfort has been rattled. Definitely. I got the message. Yeah, right? for sure. Now, what am I going to do about it? Right. I thought of this last night. I, I was like, I'm not doing enough. I'm like, I'm, I, I need to do something. I have skills and tools and abilities and experiences. Like what, why can I do more? It's, it's not enough to just like comments on, on LinkedIn or something or post something <laughs> snarky or whatever, or try to push back. I think it's important to push back the narrative. Don't get me wrong, but I'm seriously thinking that like I should be doing stress management type of workshops Definitely. And, and, and just opening up like a daily or a weekly session where people can just plug in and you're asked what to say. I don't, I don't know if I have the right words, but it, we could at least co-commiserate last week or co-commiserate. <laughs> No jokes. You know what? I called a few guys together. I'm, I'm in the process of putting together what, what would be called a, a mastermind of Jewish entrepreneurs. I was frozen. I was stuck. I was like, and so I, I called a few guys and said, hey, what's going on? And each one of them in their own way was pretty much saying it was two days after this whole thing happened. It was like, we just had this beautiful holiday. I didn't work at all. I was totally off the thing. I was like, I'm not opening my laptop. Nothing matters right now compared to the destruction and the instability going on with my brothers and sisters in Israel right now. This is before all the mayhem in America. And so a bunch of us got together in my conference room. And I said, the goal is to see what we could do. And really, we didn't do so much. But what we did is we all realized we have each other. We were able to acknowledge. One guy said, I'm scared to go running in the park. And the other guy said, I put on my Israeli jersey, my Israeli flag jersey, and I rode around the park and, and fist bump every single guy I passed. The next guy said, I just sat and meditated for three hours. And I needed to just connect with other people because I can't just sit in that space by myself. But each one their own way. And I said, guys, and they were like, what's your idea? What's your idea? I said, I, I'm not in my creative mind. I just know that when we come together, we have each other. And then we're better fathers, we're better men, we're better people, we're better humans, we're better citizens. Go out into the world and we're a little bit more resourced. And then the next day or the day after that, I was like, I have so much training in mitigating stress, trauma, overwhelm. Why? I need to use this. Let me bring some of this training that I have over all these years and all these experiences that's showing up for me now. That, that wasn't showing up for me in the moment of go to Israel and like help the army in some way. Maybe I should be visiting people in the hospitals who, who got hurt and giving them some type of smile. Good word. Or I don't know what to say to them. I would just cry with them, probably. Like people are devastated. Their lives are forever changed. The whole country. I mean, you have 300,000 people in a, in a country of what, 6 million, 7 million who got called up for reserve duty that everything is on hold. And this is not going to be a one day it's over kind of thing. Remember COVID, like everything stopped. No one knew what was coming next. It was all this overwhelm. And this is yeah, worse. in that episode where you were talking about COVID with Matt Drinkon, you were like, the world is forever changed. And then this happened. Yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? God, what do you want? I want your attention. Why? Because you're not paying enough attention to me, obviously. I mean, that's my answer, mm -hmm. right? All that fervor and prayer during COVID. I mean, I, I go to shul every day and I pray with a quorum of men, right? And I, I wasn't allowed. So I stayed home and my prayer took longer, not shorter. And I figured out how to pray by myself. It was a new way of me connecting. And then we got back to the thing. I was like, wait, hold on. I missed that. 
nobody wanted anything from me. Nobody needed me for anywhere. There was no, there was no work to go to. I mean, technically I could work at, you know, remotely, but in the bigger picture, there was no work to go to. Oh, wow. That's like a real plugin. Oh, I feel good. I'm in my happy place. I'm connected deeply, spiritually, like connected. Is it realistic for your whole lifetime to pray for hours every day? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to do that yet. Maybe I need to learn. I want to go back to what you said earlier about, am I bringing enough kindness? Am I bringing enough good in the opposite effect to what they're doing that's bad? So, I love that. And I really want to hear actually what my dad has to say about that. I think you became better at praying during COVID, but I actually feel less connected during COVID. We stopped going to synagogue. We stopped being a part of the community. I feel like I've pulled back in a lot of ways from being connected. So when something horrific happens to the Jewish community for me, I'm like, oh no, is this because I've taken steps away? It definitely made me think that, but does that make me change all of my actions? I'm a bit paralyzed. Two things, Rena. Number one, I will not calibrate anything I do to a terrorist. What I mean by that is okay. I could learn, I wow. could learn something yeah. and have insight because I can I can look at something horrific and say, yeah. what do I need to take from this? But I will never compete. I know I said the light in the dark. That's for my judgment yeah. of being able to see something differently. I am not going to value anything I do or don't do in relationship to the terrorism other than to say, eliminate the threat. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, the yeah. The only thing that I want to do about terrorism is eliminate it. Yep. Eliminate evil from this world. That's the only thing I want. Amen. Yes. Like seriously. But they now, see us as evil, which is. I get it. I I, yeah. I do. I, I mean, somewhat get it. I don't have a good answer because they've never asked me the question. So I, yeah. I, I'd have to like engage in real di authentic dialogue, but I don't think we'd be talking the same language. Number one. Number two is I think again, objectively, and there's lots of truths, I guess, objectively. I asked the question. There's um, there's a woman named Meg Wheatley wrote a book. I don't remember the name of the book right now, but one of her core concepts is who do you choose to be? Crisis is inevitable. Worlds turn over, empires crumble. I mean, this is the story or history. It's cyclical. Who do you choose to be? How do I show up? How do you show up? How do we meet the crisis? Do we crumble? Do we cower? Do we give in? Do we fight back? Do we do something different? And so I ask myself the same question. Maybe I need to pray with more kavana, with more fervorance, with more intention with more whatever. Yeah, of course I do. Maybe I need to give more charity. Maybe I need to focus less on, on acquiring wealth and maybe give away more. Maybe I need to reach out to more people throughout my day instead of reaching out to generate business. I don't do so much of it. It's mostly inbound. I need to reach out and, and offer more support. I said to my neighbor this morning, I'm thinking about like, maybe I should run something, whatever. He's like, you know, people would pay a lot of money for that. And I, I almost in my head said, this is not about money. This is about helping people. No, people would pay a lot of money for this. You'd be surprised. I said, yes, I would be. I wasn't thinking about it from a money frame and a business frame. I'm thinking about it from a giving frame, but then I'm like, wait, but I need to work. And if I spend all this time doing that, I'm not working and I got to feed my family, pay my bills. So like I'm juggling and his solution is just do this. But then I feel shifty, shady for exploiting attention or conflict. Anyhow, that's my own gibberish in my head. I'll, I'll deal with the question to your dad about, you know, I retreat or I go inward or I blame myself or whatever. I think that each one of us in our own way can accept some level of accountability, not blame accountability. And if that's something that's true for you and it shows up and you feel like, okay, I could do more. Okay. So then I wouldn't change drastically. I would advise changing small tangible and track it for 40 days. So if it means that you, you know, make another bracha or you say another tehillim or you pray in some way, or you, you have a conversation with a loved one in some way differently than you would have prior to. And you do that consistently for 40 days, building that muscle, training yourself and that thing. And then you recalibrate and say, Hey, is this enough? 
or is this helping? Or do I feel like this is the right thing? Do I want to continue this or do I want to shift it to something else? And, and I think that that's how real growth happens, not in these massive shifts because easy in, easy out, too big, is, it's not sustainable, right? And maybe that's part of the challenge of, of sort of being, spending an entire morning praying, which is awesome. Is that sustainable? Is that realistic? My world, I don't know if it's realistic. I actually don't think it is. I love what you just said, actually. I mean, I wouldn't have even started keeping the Sabbath or being observant if it weren't little tiny one line of a prayer at a time, turning my phone off, buying food that was different from the rest of the week, trying to elevate the Sabbath to be different than the rest of the week. It was very gradual. And I think I need to, like you said, just get back to, hey, maybe before I eat bread, wash, (laughs) then maybe bench, then maybe even today. I mean, on the way to this interview, I was meeting a friend for coffee and there was a girl who, oh my goodness, she looked maybe 18 or 19 years old and she came right up to my minivan and knocked on the window and had a sign up and my first thought was I'm in a rush I want to make this light I I wish that my first instinct would be like I know I have a couple bucks and my first instinct was not the right one but then I looked at her and I saw her sign and I reached into my wallet and did give her a couple bucks but my first instinct was not the one it should be and it's something that I continually struggle with so I, I like what you said just buy somebody a coffee buy somebody a bagel, open the door for somebody, call your grandmother out of the blue. All of these things make the world better and make you better. I think so. We see kindness as we're doing for someone else, but really acts of kindness are actually helping us more. Uh, You know, you mentioned benching. So part of benching is Uvene Yerushalayim, right? Jerusalem should be built with the temple. That's part of that mm. prayer. And the other that you sort of the beginning is, is recognizing it's a, it's a gratitude thing. It's recognizing the goodness in our lives. That's a gift from the almighty. I mean, you and I are not farmers. You, you and I are not out there harvesting wheat and baking bread. And, and we have very cushy lives compared to 200 or 300 years ago, right? All of us. I think we just take it for granted. I don't, I don't think we appreciate it a lot. I think we just were comfortable. And then the second part of it is a part of benching is about consoling the hardship and the pain of, of being in Gallus, not being in a spiritually grounded world, but rather living in a spiritually misattuned world. And I think that that's a safe thing to say. We live in a spiritually misattuned world. It's out of alignment. That's probably the biggest message for me. If something this evil can raise its ugly head, then we have to, it's almost like we're blind to not notice the spiritual misattunement. Take the poke, take the stab, take the knife in the heart and say, wait a minute, hold on. If we were spiritually more in tune, could that even happen to us? Or would we have a level of protection? If you think about the story of the Jews leaving Egypt, this is a a slave nation of 200 years in in servitude in foreign country, right? And they're traveling through the desert with Ananiah covered with the the clouds of glory, protecting them from the elements, protecting them from from raiding armies. I mean, you're talking about a a large group of people, but with nothing. Literally, Jews were a slave nation in Egypt, but we were protected by these Ananiya Kavod. The, the whole holiday of Sukkot that we just came through, we were on the last day of the holiday when this whole thing went down in Israel. It's literally like we're in the embrace, we're in the hug of the Almighty, and all of a sudden, somebody broke through that hug and stabbed us in the heart, collective heart, global heart. That has to be, for me, it has a rude awakening. I, I don't have answers. I have more questions than answers, but I don't have anger. At, at God. I don't have anger at the all. I, it's something that I need to do better at something in my life. And that if I would do something better and I'm not blaming myself, I'm not owning the whole thing, right? I was reflecting on somebody's thing of like, they want to save, I don't know, a million gallons of water, or they want to save the planet with some green initiative or whatever. It's fanciful to think that one person is going to make that level of impact. And then the flip side of that is 
at least the intention is good. It's well-meaning. And if they take some action and then they're inspired the next person and the next person over time, and if everybody just recycles one piece of paper, it, it may not make a, a massive dent, but it, it'll make a dent. The story of the starfish, the famous story of the starfish, all the starfish dying on the beach. This fellow comes over to him and says, like, what are you doing? Can you see? There's like there's thousands of starfish here. Flinging them back into, you really think you're going to make a difference? And as he flings the next starfish into the water, he says, that one I did. Maybe only I will be inspired. Maybe not. Maybe one of my kids will be inspired. Maybe not. Maybe all of them will be inspired. Maybe not. Maybe they'll inspire their friends. But that ripple effect of me working on me. Me being the best version of me, me being the best version of me is going to have an impact, hopefully in a positive way, not in a negative way, regardless of if some terrorist thinks I'm a terrorist. 30 minutes before we got on this call, my high school kid was home and her older sister. So my two teenagers at home were cleaning up in the living room, put on some music to make it more fun. And we were just like dancing in the dining room. It was, it was, it was a moment. And one of my kids said that a teacher in school said they shouldn't be listening to music. It's difficult times in the world. And listening to music and she she was like offended almost by that and i looked at her while while we're like you know we're, we're in the middle of doing this right i said i wouldn't make fun of what she said she's probably right but i'm not going to stop dancing with you either in i love words, that i can have both simultaneously and you could say but if the teacher said you can't listen to music and you're in the middle of listening to music and dancing with your kid that's fine i'm okay with it and i understand what the teacher is saying and why and i understand that this moment with my kid who i also was preparing that if you go to school and something bad happens in school you need to be ready to react in an aggressive way which normally i would tell you not to be right i teach you not to be aggressive your whole life and suddenly i'm saying you need to be super aggressive to the point of even killing someone like don't be afraid what you telling your kids to kill people no i'm telling my kids to eliminate evil from this world it's not the same thing so you could take me out of context you could misquote me it's all good not you but someone evil needs to be eliminated i'm back to that and i also can't stop my life because terrorism exists in the world terrorism has existed since i was alive and will exist probably after me i mean when shia comes i hope he comes soon terrorism gets eliminated and we're living in that utopian uh, super spiritual world i'm in all in like, amen i actually feel safer talking to you <laughs> wow no one said that to me before thank you rena yeah listen i i think that when we talk about i mean i don't know how i'm talking about mashiach now but one of the things that we are judged on if you will you know in after our lifetime at, at 120 is did we anticipate were we hoping for mashiach mm -hmm. to come Mashiach is not like some magic sauce kind of thing. It's a spiritually pure environment with physical living, whatever that means. And if we can imagine that utopia, we're choosing to live. We're not choosing to die. And, and I think that that's the massive point of conflict. And, and perhaps, and I'm just extrapolating what I said earlier, perhaps the reason for evil in the world is for us to recognize goodness in the world. Because if we think in contrast, so if we didn't have evil, it would just be gradations of good. We may not catch it. But when we see the contrast of evil, we could recognize what is good. When we could see the contrast of life and death, because that's how we evaluate things, it's clear that we choose life versus others who choose death. I'm going to keep saying this. If you choose death, we're more than happy to help you get there quickly. And, All right. And that, you, yeah. Creativity, reactivity. Let me say one other thing. Yeah. When we're able to pause, when we're able to ground, we're able to come back to ourselves. And we do that by grounding, by dissipating that energy, like that split second moment where, where we have choice, because we always have choice. It's just a question of how much time we have to make that choice. We have choices. And then we're able to notice. And when I say notice, we can notice what's going on. We could also notice other things beyond what's going on in the moment. 
we could notice ourselves. We can notice our loved ones. We can notice the almighty. We can notice, you know, what matters or not. We don't have time to process a thousand things, but we can notice. And then we're making a choice. In that choice, we have more quote unquote consciousness. And we've gone from reactive, that instant Italian response based on our alarm system to something closer to a thinking type of response based on what matters most. And if we recognize that what matters most, the Ahafta L'Reacha Kamocha, to love your friend as yourself. Remember, we have to love ourselves, love our friends, unity, connection. And I, I think that part of that, like an intrinsic part of that is a connection with the Almighty. There's like self, God, others, right? Self without God, okay, maybe. But then you quickly recognize that you got here from somewhere and you're going somewhere, so God, and then others. And when we have that awareness, you know, that Venn diagram, if you will, of spirituality, physicality, and relationships, and we superimpose it with a heart, for a visual, if you will, superimpose it with a heart. The heart's connecting us with others, with the Almighty, and intertwining it. Life is okay, even with hardship. And then we have the capacity to withstand terror and trauma, overwhelm, and trials and tribulations in ways that are even beyond what we think we can do because we're resourced. We're resourced internally, externally, and spiritually. When we are resourced, we have that ability to be creative and do amazing things. I love that. Okay, let's turn back on the music. <laughs> I don't know. I disconnected somewhere, but yeah. <laughs> um, hold on. We got to find, I don't know. What's the right song for this thing? My budget DJ skills. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know if I, um, I need a teenager for this. Um, That's okay. I have my own outro song, but is there anything that you would like to ask my dad from this conversation or he can just reflect on everything you said? Absolutely. I mean, I've never met your dad and I'm looking forward to hearing what, what he's saying. I think the most important question is probably a question I asked my dad many years ago when I saw what I believed was the beginning of after 9-11. And then even beyond that, when I, I started picking up inklings of the level of anti-Semitism hidden in full sight here in America, certainly in Israel. I remember asking him during the Gulf War, if I was studying in Israel, would he pull me home? Would he make me come home? Or would he let me stay? Or would he want me to stay? And if he would let me go, if I wanted to go, and we're talking, this is 30-ish years ago, he thought about it. I remember the look on his face. He said, no, if Klal Yisrael, if Jews, the Jewish community is struggling with something. You're going to run away from them? That's not, no. I said, what if I wanted to go? He goes, different question. And then I don't, I don't remember what the rest of the conversation was, but the next year I was in Israel studying. So clearly it wasn't no. And, you know, I have a, a question about one of my children who's supposed to be, who just got married, who's supposed to be moving to Israel as a young couple for a year. Mazel tov. And thank you. And she said to me on October 7, or October 8, whatever day Yantif was over, am I still going to be able to go? Should I go? What? It was like, a, it was that overwhelming moment. And I said, until I have a really good reason why not, absolutely. You can definitely go. I think you should go. I might go with you. It's two weeks later. A few people have said to me, are you crazy? I'm not crazy. I don't think we're safer here in terms of safety. I think God's running a perfect show. We just don't understand the symmetry of it. There's a certain protection. There's a certain atmosphere in the air when you're in Israel. It's protective air. It's healthy air. It's good air. With missiles raining overhead, with bombs exploding, with tanks rolling, with terrorists roaming, with all of it. And this is not about police force or army. I, I'm not here at that level. I'm, I'm talking the connection with above level. I know for me personally, there's nothing like praying in Jerusalem to the Kosal and being at the wall and plugging in. Not always can I, do I feel it instantly? Not always do I get it, but it's there. Roaming the old city. And it breaks my heart every time I have to be cautious which part of the old city I'm in, because if I take one step to the wrong alley, I'm in trouble. You know, my life could be in danger, is in danger, not could be. I don't live in the overwhelm of, I'm going to walk down the wrong alleyway. I'm going to end up on the wrong side of the street, get killed for it. I'm there to plug in, to connect, to recharge my spiritual batteries. That, that's what I'm doing. 
I don't want to make decisions based on terrorists. I don't, I mean, I'm aware, I'm situationally aware as we talked about, but that can't dictate my life. That's like almost letting, like giving into them. That's what they want. They want us all to be frozen and scared and stuck. No way, no way. Let's get out there. Let's do what we have to do. Let's make improvements in the world. Let's be the light that we're, we, we have. Let's shine it forward. Let's connect in unity and connection and growth and prayer and study and chesed. I mean, it's incredible what people are doing and how they're doing it each in their own voice in their own way. Let's double down on that because that's who we are. That's who we are. That's who we are as individuals. That's who we are as a nation. That's in our DNA. Back to the question for your dad it's, is what's the lesson he can take away and what, what improvements does he recommend? What calming voice, what, what calming words or, or inspirations or, or lessons has he learned from lifetime of navigating challenges? Because part of our resilience comes from recognizing we can overcome challenges. 100%. What did he learn from his parents and grandparents potentially? Like what, what does he know that he may never have brought forward potentially? And how can he give over that message for you, for your children, for the grandchildren, et cetera, so that that message gets played forward in, in a supportive growth oriented way? I think that that's the, that's the question I would ask you there. That's a beautiful question. Thank you so much. I love that. Very thoughtful. And let people know how they can further connect with you. It's ezramax.com forward slash connecting. Cool. With a ing, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-N-G. It was more about how to network properly, whether at a family event, because people get overwhelmed or at a business conference. I didn't create it. You know something, that article that I just submitted should come out the first or the second. So what is that? A couple of days away. I can send you a link to it potentially. I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I don't have it yet. They send me a copy of it when it comes out. I'll, I'll email that to you if you want. So that's Fantastic. another way. I think the, the thing I would ask, not even to connect with me, is connect with yourself. Ooh. Like if you're listening to this, yes, just stop and pause for 30, 60, 90 seconds and recognize, feel your heartbeat. You know, put your hand on your heart, feel your love for yourself, resource yourself, be in the moment, plug into the almighty. He's everywhere. He loves you cares about you, wants what's best for you, plug into that. And then if you can reach out to somebody else and connect with them in some meaningful way, that would be the greatest gift. Comes all the way back to the top of what I was saying before. Let's find ourselves, our authentic selves, our pure neshama, soul-based selves that have capacity for love and connection and spiritual growth. And we live in a material world. I'm not ignoring any of that stuff. And I'm not saying it's not important. Try living without food and water. It doesn't really work well, right? We're pro-life, right? We're, we're about living. But let's not also forget that we're spiritual beings in a meat suit. Imagine a million people just plug in a little bit, like a micro more into spirituality. Like how much goodness would that rain into this world? That's what I'm thinking. I like it. Yeah, Rena, this was awesome. Thanks for listening, asking, connecting. If one person feels a little bit more comfortable in the turmoil and the craziness of this world. If someone has an opportunity to eradicate evil in whatever way they can, as a result of hearing this, that they're, they can think about it as not being afraid of it, but will eliminate it. And that gives them the resource to just live their life more in and on. That would be incredible. Please let me know when that happens because that lights me up. Every little step means something. It counts. And we sometimes forget we're hard on ourselves. We need these big, huge, overarching things. It's like, yes, like <laughs> line total tangent, but really in line, he's like, I want to make a million dollars next year. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Do you have a plan for it? He goes, no, that's what I'm calling you. I'm like, yeah. how much did you make last year? He's like, 250, 300. I said, okay, so how do you want to go from 250, 300 to a million? I don't know. That's what I'm calling you. I said, that's awesome. How did you make 250 to 300? He goes, I don't know. I said, yeah. here's my plan. Let's figure out how you did that. 
And let's make sure you're secure in doing that for next year. And then we can talk about how to double it or quadruple it. But until we, right, baby yeah. steps, please. Let's walk, let's crawl before we walk, walk before we run, and then, you know, get other people on the journey with us. So I, I think that's the same thing with uh, financial growth, as well as uh, family dynamics, as well as business growth. Oh, we're going to change around this whole family. We're going to become a loving, caring, conscientious family overnight. <laughs> Okay, we're going to be nicer to each other for five minutes once a week. That's tangible. That's practical. Now, wait, hold on. What are we going to be to be nicer? How are we going to become nicer? We're just going to be nicer. No, no, no. That's not going to work. We're going to be nicer by taking five minutes to listen to someone, by taking interest in their life, by smiling at them, by giving them a compliment, by buying them a gift, by writing them a note. Now we have practical, tangible. Now let's go do it. And again, I'm, I'm talking about the family element. Business, same thing. We have businesses that model our families. I told a CEO of a growing multi-million dollar conglomerate yesterday, he, and he agreed. I said, it's my opinion that cash flow problems are people problems. So if we solve your people problems, you won't have cash flow problems. He said, no, we don't have cash flow problems. I said, yeah, but you want to scale and you want to have like tens of millions more in revenue in the next few years. Yeah, I do. I said, great. He goes, but I need to grow. I said, that's what I'm saying. If you grow, then the people around you grow. Everybody grows. Your money will grow with it. Like it, it, it almost like directly correlates. So I'm all about that personal growth, spiritual growth. Uh, and now we're interconnected because we, it's a symbiotic relationship, all those pieces. And actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, it's the part about us being connected to ourselves, each other and the divine. And if any of part of that is out of balance, everything is out of balance. On that note, I wish you, Reno, and your family peace and serenity, even in these tumultuous times, and that you find the clarity of what's that next little baby step, and you're able to take on that thing and, and build and grow with it, and that you see success with it. And then Amen. that leads to the next step and the next step, because our whole life is about sort of ups and downs. Really, it's all about ups and downs. And when we're dysregulated, those ups and downs are like extreme. It's like a vomit-inducing roller coaster. But when we can taper off those curves, and it's kind of more like this, and an occasional thing, then life overall is much more pleasant and exciting, right? When we have these violent up and down, it's just, it's just, ah, seasickness. Too much calm is not good either because then we get complacent, fall asleep at the wheel. It's just too easy. And so that's why, and, and maybe that's why I don't get mad at God about certain things. I see it as a wake up call. I see it as a you're getting complacent. Maybe that's just my interpretation. So, and I get that, but I think we talked about this. I, I almost lost my vision. In one. I was one of the first people in New York to do a plasma. I had COVID before and anyone knew it was COVID. I'm an overachiever, right? Um, that's a joke. I mean, I am, but I was making fun of a harsh thing. And then out of the blue, I was losing my vision. I just didn't realize it. I thought I was just fatigued or whatever. And then, you know, I had a real eye emergency and with miracles, ended up with a surgeon in the hospital with a repair that then had complications. But my question wasn't like, I'm praying so intensely, like, how could this happen to me? That wasn't the question. The question is, what is the lesson? I don't know that I have the answer yet, but I'm, I'm working on it patiently and to find that clarity and, and be able to say with confidence, oh, I get it. This was the thing I was supposed to notice, whatever it might be. And I, I don't know yet. I think it's okay to not know. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't want to know. It means I can move forward even in the not knowing and still want to know. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. What was nice about hearing Ezra is that he has a lot of spiritual connection, and he has a message that is Ezra's truth, or as you know, the Better Call Daddy truth. If more people were like Ezra and your father, there would be more peace in the world, because we do get it. It's ironic that when there's tragedies going on or storms or disasters are occurring in our lives, right away we want to say, where was God? And the funny part is we've brought this up before. 
God is always here and he hears us, but he put us in a world of choice. He put us in a world where we can experience good, bad, or super even up to super evil. And the only way to combat super evil is we need super, super good. And I really loved Ezra bringing that up, is that we can't get complacent. We have to really show that we can mature as a race and as a people and as a world. We talked about this before, that we're making big technological improvements. We're making medicine breakthroughs. We're doing so much progress with the way with we can live and live simpler and easier. And yet, when disaster strikes, when evil pulls out its evil head, you can have all the money in the world, you could have the best health, you could have the best house, and yet it can be destroyed in a moment. You could be stripped naked where your life is not even worth two cents. It's really horrifying to think that everything that you could build in your life could just be taken away where the rationale behind it is it's hard to make sense of it all. That's why we have even these disasters that even can occur to our world, is that look at your mom and I, we've gone on some wonderful vacation trips, and every time we take a trip, a hurricane follows us wherever we go. So we have a great enjoyment, and yet we've got to be careful that we don't get killed on every time we take a trip somewhere, because the hurricanes follow us wherever we go. Isn't that maybe part of life also, is that we have to be so grateful and so appreciative of every moment of our lives that we have that's good because the choices that we make sometimes are even beyond our control, but disaster is waiting right around the corner. So we can't take anything for granted. And even with our own family, as you know, you've had ups and downs where, where things can get in the way that can destroy families, whether they're guns or money or territory or land. People destroy each other over these issues. The meaning of life is to stay close to God, try very hard to follow His. This is His show. It's not our show. He created a world. It's his experiment to create a world with choice where you have an opportunity to learn from good and bad, from making mistakes and doing things right and wanting to choose to do better. And that is the key to success is getting more and more and more people involved in your success. So networking with people, he also mentioned that if you want your business to expand or grow, you have to have people in your organization and they're going to grow also. If you have to be responsible for doing every variable of your business, you can't grow. It's just a one-man show. You can't get anywhere. You max out. But numbers have a tremendous effect on whether you could be successful or how evil does the same thing. Is that numbers and you multiply them. Wow, what an effect it has on life. So let's get numbers and let's build numbers in a positive manner so that we can overtake the heights of evil that can still be there in this world at a level that's just shocking. What happened on October 7th is just shocking that evil can still be at that extreme level. And the only way to get out of it is to have a world of extreme good and cooperation. That's the only way to get out of it. Whether those are words of wisdom that I made up or have been passed on to me, it's the connection that your father has with generations that I also try to project their dreams still. I'm still living my grandfather and great-grandfather's dreams and my father's dreams and hoping that I can instill that in my children and my children's children. I wish I could live forever, but I can't. So the only way that I can get that message is across is also to network with my future generations so that they can take the ball and continue to run for touchdowns.
That's pretty good. Touchdown. He asked me what experiences that I've had of overcoming some of the adversities. And your father has been full of them. Just when I think I'm doing everything good and right, I've also been criticized and been attacked my whole life. And it, and it's seen big ups and downs in my life. You learn from it. You have to be able to overcome despair with positive thoughts, with positive actions, and staying in motion when it's so easy that when things go wrong, to want to just hide under the covers or hide under the bed. But that's not what life's about. In order to get the true meaning of your life, you've got to be in the game. You've got to be in the show, and you got to keep on moving forward and growing. And Ezra said a lot of the same things. That's why I said he could be my brother. He sounded just like me. So I really loved the episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.